Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Dementia is the loss of cognitive functioning, including thinking, remembering, and reasoning, to such an extent that it interferes with a person's daily life and activities. There are over 100 types of dementia. Resources offering care, support, and education for persons diagnosed with dementia and their families can be beneficial throughout the course of the disease process. Today, my guest is Lindsay Vajpai, Director of Early Stage Programs at Insight Memory Care Center. Lindsay's going to describe the common types of dementia, the signs and symptoms of each condition, and medical diagnostic tests. She'll also describe available programs and services to assist both individuals diagnosed with dementia and their families. So welcome, Lindsay, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Cheryl. All right. Well, you already heard me give kind of a brief introduction of dementia, but talk more about exactly what dementia is and and how it differs from normal aging. Dementia is when there is a cognitive change that's more significant than what we would expect of someone's age, and it's significant enough that it is interfering with daily life. So with a normal aging process, we can expect our brains to change a bit, just like our bodies change. So it might take us a little longer to get that word out that we want to say or to recall you know, the name of an, uh, a restaurant or an address. It might take a little bit longer to complete some tasks that we used to be able to do quickly, but there are not changes that are happening in normal aging that are significantly impacting daily life. There might be things happening that are occasionally irritating or even embarrassing, like when you are about to introduce someone to an acquaintance and that name doesn't pop up like it used to. But in normal aging, those changes are not significantly affecting daily life. They're not happening all of the time. With dementia, things are happening at a rate that is noticeable to other people, and it is starting to impact daily life. Someone's ability to function independently, to be comfortable in social situations, to take care of things like their finances and cooking and cleaning and appointments. And when someone has dementia, it's harder to do all of those things. And I really want to hear more. I I said in my introduction about there are over 100 types of dementia elaborate on that. I That really surprised me. And I'd like to, and I'm sure our audience would as well, our listeners, are there really 100 types of dementia and are they all um, prevalent all the time? What do we need to know? Well, there are over 100 types of dementia, but they're not all common. 
So the most common form of dementia is Alzheimer's disease, which most people have at least some general awareness about. Alzheimer's affects about 60 to 80% of people who have dementia. So that means they have that specific disease happening in their brain. But there are other types of dementia as well. Uh, vascular dementia would be the second most common type. And vascular dementia occurs when there's been a stroke or a series of mini strokes. So there could be basically blockages or microscopic bleeding in the brain that leads to a cognitive impairment. There's also Lewy body dementia, which could be both Parkinson's disease dementia. So when someone has Parkinson's and the, the latter part of that disease, it could affect cognition. That's one type of Lewy body dementia. The other type is called dementia with Lewy bodies, which means there's a cognitive change happening first, and then some of those features of Parkinsonisms that may occur at the same time or later. And then another very common form of dementia is called FTD, frontal temporal degeneration, which has numerous subtypes in and of itself, and then many more rare types of dementia beyond that. Uh, so most people are familiar with Alzheimer's, uh, maybe Lewy body or vascular FTD, but the others are, you know, quite rare. First of all, I want to make sure I understand, are these neurodegenerative disorders? Is that what these are? Yes, these are neurodegenerative disorders. So that means that, that the brain cells are changing. I mean, essentially brain cells are dying with each form of dementia. The disease process, you know, exactly what's causing it and what's happening in the brain is different for each type of dementia. But the, the common thread is that brain cells are dying and that impacts function. That impacts the way that the brain works and how one part of the brain works with another part of the brain you know, to help us through our daily lives. So each type of dementia may look a bit different, especially in the early stage of the disease, but each form of dementia will also be progressive and by the end of the disease, you know, will impact pretty much the whole brain. So would the characteristics of these different conditions that you've described, are they in fact different then, depending on which type of dementia a person has? There would. For example, with Alzheimer's disease in the early stage, it's usually that short-term memory loss that's most apparent. There will be other changes that occur as well, but the memory loss is that primary thing that people notice. For other forms of dementia, like Lewy body dementia, it may be more executive functioning that's changing. It might also be some of those Parkinsonisms, so difficulty with balance, frequently falling, uh, slowness of ability to process information and to, uh, you know, sort of either verbally or physically be able to uh, respond to stimuli. Or with FTD, the changes tend to be either with communication or behavior. And it may be that memory is not impacted until much further in the disease process. But also within each type of dementia, any two people will experience it differently. So you could take two people who have Alzheimer's disease, uh, same gender, same age, same education level, and they could have quite different experiences and symptoms with that disease. So there's a saying, you know, for, with one person who has Alzheimer's disease, that's just one person with Alzheimer's disease. Let's talk a little bit more about Alzheimer's disease. You mentioned one of the warning signs. As I understand it, there are actually 10 warning signs of Alzheimer's. What are those? And then when is it time to seek a physician's advice? 
The Alzheimer's Association has put together a list of 10 warning signs of Alzheimer's disease. And that includes things like not being able to remember things that have happened recently. I mean, we all might have a, a you know, miss a detail, not be able to recall a detail of a conversation or something. But when someone has Alzheimer's disease, they're forgetting things that have happened very recently. Like, did I take my medicine this morning? Did I have breakfast this morning? What did my doctor tell me at the appointment yesterday? You know, remembering that maybe one of my children or grandchildren called me a couple of days ago and what's new with them. So memory loss tends to be one of those big warning signs, but there are others as well. There could be changes in communication, like significant changes in word finding abilities. A person may, you know, almost in every sentence have difficulty thinking of the words that they want to say. There could be changes in judgment and decision making. You know, the person who is falling victim to scam after scam you know, or who is giving money to people that they wouldn't normally give money to, or just generally making, you know, poor decisions that are not characteristic of that person. There could be changes in mood, there could be changes in behavior, changes in ability to do daily tasks. So things like um, using the microwave, recording a show on TV, using a cell phone, checking email, paying bills, setting up doctor's appointments, you know, all of those things could become much more challenging. And so when someone is concerned about themselves or about a family member or a friend, it is best to go and talk with the doctor because just because someone has a, seems to have a memory impairment does not automatically mean that it's Alzheimer's disease. There are a lot of things that can cause someone's uh, thinking abilities to change with age, and that can include everything from vitamin deficiencies to brain tumors to depression to thyroid issues and a host of other things. And so it's important for someone to go and see their doctor. And the doctor is the person who's going to try to get to the bottom of what is going on. And that's a good segue into the next question, which is a memory screening. Help us understand what is memory screening? What is the process? And and how can older adults and their families learn more about this, this diagnostic tool? A memory screening is just that. It's a screening. Just like you might go and have your blood pressure taken, you end up with a result that either falls into what's considered a normal range or not in the normal range. And the memory screening does just that, but looking at our cognition. So going through a, a basic assessment uh, that usually would take between 5 and 15 minutes, depending on which tool is used, you get a score. And it falls in the normal range or it doesn't. But a memory screening itself doesn't tell you if someone has a particular form of dementia or what's causing that cognitive change. So it really is just a starting point, just like taking your blood pressure would be. It's a starting point to then dig a little bit deeper. If we get, if there's a, someone who does a memory screening and their score falls below the normal range, this is an opportunity to have a conversation about what's happening in daily life. You know, what symptoms a person might be experiencing have they talked with their doctor about it? And really encouraging the person to then go and see their doctor to try to get to the bottom of what's going on. I just wanted to, to ask in terms of physician, is this usually something that would be done by a, a primary care physician? Is this kind of a normal routine if somebody says that this is why they're coming to see their physician? It should be a normal part of the routine, but uh, each physician treats cognitive changes a little bit differently. Uh, and some are very proactive about doing things like memory screenings and others may wait for a, uh, their patient or the family of their patient 
to express a concern about cognition. So a memory screening could be done by a physician or a nurse practitioner. It could also be done by a social worker, a care manager. We do them at Insight. Uh, there is a specific training to go through to know how to uh, to give these screening tools and how to assess the results and to share those with the person that's being screened. But it's just one of many tools that helps helps providers take a look at what's going on. And to get a diagnosis of dementia, there's no one test. There's no one cognitive test. There's no one brain scan. It's really taking all of these pieces of the puzzle and putting them together. So the cognitive assessment would be one piece of that puzzle. Now, if let's assume that this person is going to see the physician and presumably perhaps brings along a, a family member or someone with them. Is there some information or medical records or some kind of um, different items that a patient should bring to the visit? Uh, what, what would people need to know so that it could really optimize the, the visit and get as much information as possible, both for the patient as well as the physician? Well, one of the things that you just mentioned, and I'm so glad you did, is about bringing a family member or a friend along. That's really, really helpful, especially if the concern is about changes in memory or changes in judgment. It's really helpful to have that additional perspective because the person themselves who's experiencing these symptoms may not recall some of those unusual situations that have recently occurred or may not be aware of some of the changes in judgment that they're experiencing. So having a, a family member or a friend, someone who knows that person well, would be really, really helpful at that doctor's appointment. But other things that that um, you should maybe take along to that visit, you know, being prepared, would be taking a list of any changes in health or changes in symptoms, especially over the last six to 12 months, you know, what's normal for this person and what's going on now? What are we seeing that's changing? Uh, which, can, you know, is very subjective, but it's very important information for the physician who may only see this person once a year, you know, for a very limited amount of time. The person would also want to take a list of any current or past medical concerns. If there's a family history of dementia, for example, that would be helpful for the physician to know. They would also want to take along all of their current prescriptions, over-the-counter medications they take, vitamins, supplements, to let the physician know about that. Because it is possible that these symptoms could be due to things like side effects of medications or interactions between medications. So really being prepared going into that visit is going to make it a much more productive and helpful visit. Now, you mentioned a moment ago when we were talking about memory screening, that that was one of the diagnostic tests, but you also mentioned there are other diagnostic tests. So what should they expect? What other kinds of diagnostic tests might a physician conduct, especially given what you just told us about the kind of information that they would be bringing along or items that they would be bringing along? A memory screening would be one fairly basic cognitive assessment tool. The physician or the physician may refer to a neuropsychologist for more uh, for additional cognitive assessments, a more in-depth cognitive assessment. Uh, when a neuropsychologist gets involved, they would do a, a whole host of different cognitive assessment tools that could take really up to a few hours. You know, it's quite intensive. 
And then in addition to these cognitive assessments, the doctor would likely order some type of a brain scan, like a CT scan, an MRI, or a PET scan, depending on what the doctor is looking for, uh, whether it's looking for evidence of a disease or to rule out other things, to rule out stroke, to rule out brain tumors and things like that. The doctor would probably also order some blood work. So they draw some labs and they would look for things like evidence of infection, uh, maybe looking at vitamin deficiencies or just other irregularities in that lab work to try to give them some clues about what could be going on. And then as part of that process, I would imagine that the individual who is there, and again, with a family member, hopefully, or a friend, there probably are a lot of questions that that individual should be asking the physician. Give us some examples of questions that um, we should maybe write down in advance so that we're prepared when we get to the physician's office for that visit. Well, one of the first things that I would ask if I was the person or the family member is, what do the results of all of these different tests show? And is this a form of dementia? What type of dementia do I have? What has caused my dementia? Because when we at least have some ter- some terminology, we can then learn more about it. Uh, it's, sometimes families come out of a doctor's appointment and, and don't really get clear answers from the physician. And sometimes it's because it's so early in this diagnostic process that there are not clear answers. So it's important to at least ask these questions so that you're understanding everything that the doctor knows so far. You'd also want to ask if there is a form of dementia and what type is it? Is there treatment available, whether it's for the disease process itself or symptomatically? Is there something that can help me in my everyday life? Are there tips for daily life? Are there therapists I should see? For example, speech therapists. Should I have a driving assessment? What kind of help is available to guide me and to guide my family? Should I tell other people about my diagnosis? So there are so many things that might be racing through someone's mind. And you're right that it's really helpful to write these questions down in advance because it can be extremely overwhelming in those doctor's appointments. And and just to hear words like, you have Alzheimer's disease, can feel like a punch in the gut. And it often takes a number of visits to get to the point of a diagnosis. It may take a year to two years to actually get to the point of a diagnosis. Oftentimes, people will be diagnosed with dementia, which is just sort of generally means that there's less cognitive change that's impacting daily life. And it might be another few visits down the road before an actual type of dementia is diagnosed. For example, Alzheimer's disease or Lewy body dementia. So it's quite a process. It's not something where you go into your regular physical and come out 15 minutes later with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And I'm wondering, in terms of these questions, which are just absolutely excellent, are there any places like websites or or other uh, resources that people could look up, say, before they go on the patient visit, so that they would kind of be prepared? Because sometimes as in many cases in health issues, you don't know what you don't know. And so I was just wondering if there was anything that you could share right now as to what questions to take along. Yes, uh, Insight has put together a list of questions to ask at doctor's appointments because this is something that families ask us about quite frequently. On our website, which is insightmcc.org, there is a, a document called Questions to Ask. 
And that has this list of items to bring to the physician's visit, questions to ask the doctor, and things to consider next when a diagnosis has been made. So that's something that can be printed, downloaded, taken with you to the appointment so that you're not having to come up with these questions on the spot. You have a point of reference right there in front of you that you can follow along with to help you through those appointments and make them as productive as possible so that you have the information that you need to move forward. And we are going to learn more about Insight Memory Center at the in the second half of the uh, the program. But I had one more question: If an older adult is diagnosed with dementia, why is a dementia checklist important? What exactly is a a checklist, and what issues need to be addressed, and should family members be involved? What t- tell us a little bit more about next steps? Well, as you say. You don't know what you don't know. And this is not something that people generally prepare for. It's not something they are researching just in case. It's if it's happening, now I'm suddenly trying to figure out what to do next. And so Insight has also put together a checklist of what to do following a dementia diagnosis. And this checklist includes things like telling other people, starting the conversation. You know, when do I tell other people? When do I tell maybe my spouse When do I tell my adult children? When do I tell my best friends? When do I tell my neighbors? You know, and really thinking through things like, how do I start these conversations? The checklist also includes learning about the diagnosis because knowledge is power. You know, it's things, uh, even though this is a, something that no one is wishing for, no one's hoping for a diagnosis of dementia, if it happens, the more that you can learn about it, the more you will discover strategies, tips, resources that can be really helpful to the person and to their family. So it gives you that chance to learn about the diagnosis. The checklist also includes what kinds of treatments might be available. For some forms of dementia, there may be treatments available for symptoms. For example, with Alzheimer's disease, there are medications that have been approved by the FDA for 20 plus years at this point that can help some people with their symptoms. So what are those things and talking about that? You know, planning is really important when there's a diagnosis of dementia because it is a neurodegenerative condition, which means we can expect that the brain will continuously change over time. So we wanna have these important conversations now while the person has the most cognitive ability uh, that, that they will in the future. So there is a program called SHARE that is evidence-based, which means it has over 20 years of research behind it and has proven outcomes. The SHARE program is really helpful for the person with the recent diagnosis, as well as their primary care partner, to really talk through some of these sensitive issues, to understand the diagnosis, how to communicate more effectively as a family, to learn more about what the person with the diagnosis values, what their preferences are for future care. Um, It gives a chance to discuss balancing the best interests of both partners because we know that this diagnosis doesn't only affect the person whose brain is changing. It also has a significant impact on the people who are close to them, like that primary care partner. And through the SHARE program process, a plan is developed that helps families really feel more confident moving forward. It doesn't mean that that plan has to be followed exactly to the T, But it does help families understand what their options are and have a better understanding of what their loved one would want at different decision points in the future. 
Some other things to consider after a diagnosis are, do I have my legal and financial documents in place? Things like estate planning documents. I might have them, but if I wrote them up 10 plus years ago, they might not reflect exactly what I want today. So pulling out those advanced directives, power of attorney documents, wills, trusts, and things like that, and making sure that they say exactly what you want them to say now is really important in the very early part of this disease process. Other things to consider include seeking out physical and social activity for the person living with the diagnosis. And research has shown us that that can be some of the most impactful, one of the two of the most impactful things that someone could do as far as quality of life and daily functionality, being physically and socially active. Other things include keeping an eye on what's called IADLs, Instrumental Activities of Daily Living. And these are some of the things that the person with the diagnosis would likely struggle with early on in the disease, including bill paying, driving, using the computer, using a calendar, setting up appointments, uh, doing shopping, laundry, things like that tend to become a bit more challenging. So keeping an eye on those changes and for that primary care partner or other members of the care team to start you know, not stepping in and taking over, but helping to support the person, right? Maybe it means that mom and I go shopping together instead of her going independently. Maybe it means that I'm taking, you know, just keeping an eye on my spouse's car to, to watch for unexplained scratches or dings or other changes that might, you know, might kind of raise my radar about this. This might maybe isn't as safe as it used to be. And when do I need to step in and offer some support? And finally, consider joining a support group, especially for those care partners. But there are also a couple of support groups in the area for people living with the diagnosis and considering involvement in clinical trials. For all of us here in the DC metro area, we're in a really great place to get involved in research and clinical trials. Having Georgetown just here across the river from us in Virginia, NIH being not far away, Johns Hopkins, and even smaller clinical trial sites this is a way to get involved. It's a way to do something active when it might feel like you're in a powerless situation. So getting involved in research can be a really great way to help future generations, to help a body of science, and potentially even to help the person who's going through a research study. So those are some of the things to consider getting involved with or looking into after a diagnosis of dementia has been made. But we know that this is overwhelming. And so that's why it's a checklist. It's sort of taking one step at a time because you can't bite everything off at once. And uh, there's also a whole emotional toll that this takes on the person and their family. So it's just, you know, kind of being mindful of what there is to get done and working through that checklist at a pace that works for that family. And to that point, we're going to be talking more about some of those programs. You had mentioned one already, the SHARE program, and we'll maybe talk a little bit more about that in the second half. But we're going to take a short break right now. And uh, uh, in case you tuned in late, we're talking with Lindsay Vajpai, who is the Director of Early Stage Programs at Insight Memory Care Center. We're talking about dementia and the resources and programs that are available and we'll be talking more about that in the second half. But right now, we want you to know that you're listening to WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. 
Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Welcome back. We're talking with Lindsay Vajpai, who is the Director of Early Stage Programs at Insight Memory Care Center. Our topic today is dementia and available resources and programs. And to that point, you had mentioned, Lindsay, uh, in the first half about Insight Memory Care Center, but we want to focus a little bit more on the center. Where and what is the center? What is the mission and vision? And who are the target audiences that the uh, the center serves? Well, Insight Memory Care Center is a nonprofit organization, a 501c3, that's been in Northern Virginia since 1984, though we've had a couple of other names over the years uh, as we've grown and, and changed. Our mission is to provide specialized care, support, and education for individuals in all stages of memory or cognitive impairment their care partners, and the community. And our vision is a community where those living with memory or cognitive impairment and their care partners can achieve the highest quality of life. So Insight Memory Care Center is uh, not a place where people live. It's a place where people come for the day for programming. It's also uh, an organization that offers a lot of services for care partners and for families to do together. So Insight is located in Fairfax, Virginia, in the Fair Oaks area. And in that location, we have our main offices. We have our Reconnections program, which is for individuals in the early stage, and also our Adult Day Health Center. And in January of 2022, we were really excited to open a Sterling Early Stage Center in Sterling, Virginia, where we hold our Reconnections program and other early stage services. But during the pandemic, Insight also started offering virtual programs to serve our families when we couldn't be together. And many of those virtual programs have endured after the, you know, the, the height of the pandemic has, uh, has ended. So we do offer services both in person in Fairfax and Sterling, but also virtually to anyone, anywhere. Does one have to be a resident of Virginia to use the services of, um, of the center? Can they be in Maryland, the district? What, what do we need to know? There are no geographic limitations. So if someone can get to us, we can serve them. We do occasionally have people who come to our in-person programming from DC, from Montgomery County, from Prince William County, you know, and other places. Um, but also that's one of the benefits of now having virtual programs is we do see people engaging in some of our virtual participant programs and virtual support groups from far-flung you know, locations. We've had people participate in classes from Hawaii. We have regular support group attendees from Connecticut, from Florida, from Texas, from all kinds of places. So really, if you can, if you can get to us, whether virtually or in person, we will serve you. So we do not have any limitations on what county you have to live in or anything like that. Okay, well, and I want to now get into a couple of, well, many of these programs that, that uh, the center offers. So let's start. You had mentioned already several times the early stage memory care programs. Uh, 
how and when and why are they needed, and as, as well as the reconnections program and the goal there. So let's let's start with those two. Tell us more. Well, Insight realized, you know, quite a long time ago that there was really a gap in services available in the community for individuals in the early stage of dementia, as well as for their care partners. So even all the way back to 1999, that was the first iteration of what we now call our Reconnections program. It was then the Saturday Social Club for people in the early stage of the disease. And over the years, it's evolved and and has grown. And now we have a program called Reconnections that is specifically for people with early stage dementia. It is a program that someone would enroll in, which means they would come on a regular basis for a certain number of days you know, each week. And the Reconnections program is a social club model program, which means it's not a clinical healthcare type of program. It's really meant for people living in the early stage of the disease to interact with each other, to challenge their brains, to challenge their bodies, to develop social connections, to increase mood, you know, to keep their bodies moving, to really be connected. And so the Reconnections program is a great way to have a sense of purpose for someone to wake up in the morning and know that there's a place, you know, that they can go where they have friends waiting for them, where someone is excited to see them, where they'll go through a variety of activities together throughout the day that include things like brain fitness, physical exercises, artistic activities, visiting musicians, trivia, games, all kinds of things that are really designed to help people work different parts of their brain and body while also being very socially engaged with each other. And and how does that compare to the early stage memory care program? Well, there's also an adult day health program, which is really what Insight was originally known for. That's how we started back in 1984 was with an adult day health program which serves people that are closer to the middle stage of the disease and beyond. So in the middle stage of the disease, someone may need some assistance with either reminders to use the bathroom or or in the bathroom. The person in the middle stage may be more at risk for things like wandering or attempting to leave the environment and wouldn't be safe to do so. Uh, The person in the middle stage would need more assistance with activities and things like reading and writing activities might become much more challenging. So at Insight, we have both an early stage program called Reconnections, but also in Fairfax, we have an adult day health center directly across the sidewalk, right next door to, to each other. And within the adult day health program, there are actually three different levels of care so that everyone is with their peers They're with others who are at a very similar cognitive level, who have similar physical abilities, similar social abilities, and so that the activities that are designed for that day program really fit the people who are in the program, that they are not too challenging or too simple. And what we do at Insight is called person-centered care. So both in the early stage reconnections program, but also in the kind of middle to late stage adult day health program. All of the activities are designed to be of interest to the people who are there that day in the program. So if you were in the Navy, we may have a program about the Navy that day. If you love jazz music, we would have a jazz musician come in on those days when you're visiting, right? We would have the activities designed for the people who are there on that day and to be at the appropriate level. And I also noticed on your website that you have a mind and body workshop Tell us more about that. Who are the target audiences? What kind of activities are conducted? What do we need to know there? 
The Mind and Body Workshop is for couples in the early stage of the disease. And by couples, I, I just really mean the person with the diagnosis as well as their primary care partner. So it could be a spouse, it could be an adult child, it could be a sibling, a best friend. But this is a way for, for those couples to get to know other people who are also going through something similar to what that they're going through. The Mind and Body Workshop is a series of four sessions where we might have six or eight couples there together. We would do a group activity together. So that's helping everyone to sort of, you know, loosen up and, and get involved in the program and get chatting and talking with each other. Um, it would provide people with an opportunity to engage in new experiences, maybe to do something they wouldn't normally do with a family member or wouldn't normally do at home. So there's a group activity. And then we do breakout sessions. So following that group activity, everyone who has that early stage diagnosis would stay in one part of the building with our recreation therapists, and there would be an activity designed for them. And then all the care partners would go to another room in the building with a social worker, and there would be an educational support group session. And then after the breakout sessions, everyone comes back together and has dinner together. So that's one, you know, that's a great way to meet other people and to just have this informal opportunity to to get to know each other and to talk is is with food, is around the dinner table together. So the Mind and Body Workshop is a great way for couples to meet other couples and to really kind of tiptoe into utilizing services. And, you know, it's a limited number of weeks that we're together. It's just once a week for about two and a half hours. But it does give an opportunity to just meet other people, to get used to going into the space where other programs like Reconnections are held, to get used to interacting with some of the staff at Insight. Um, it's because it's so challenging, you know, for anyone to, to start something new for any of us. You know, if I can imagine myself starting a new job or going to a new school, there's a lot of anxiety and, and fear and uncertainty around that. And when someone is living with a changing brain, it's even harder to cope with those types of stressors. But by doing something together with my primary care partner, when we can go to Mind and Body Workshop together and meet other couples who are going through something like we're going through, it really helps to alleviate some of that fear and anxiety. And it really is a lot of fun. For many families, this is the first time they've really interacted with other people who are going through something like they're going through. And they can let their guard down. They don't have to put on any type of performance they don't have to be anything other than what they are at that moment. So it's a really great opportunity for couples to do something together. You had mentioned a little bit earlier before the break about the SHARE program. And I was going to ask you, is, is that an acronym? Tell us what exactly SHARE stands for and anything else you wanted to share with us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the SHARE program is also a program that's designed for couples in the early stage of the disease, the person with the diagnosis, as well as the primary care partner. And SHARE is an acronym. It stands for Support, Health, Activities, Resources, and Education, which are essentially the goals of the SHARE program. It's to build that network of support. It's to to communicate effectively, to reduce stress, to learn about resources, you know, to understand the disease process. But one of the things that's different about the SHARE program from Mind and Body Workshop is that in the SHARE program, that couple would work directly with a SHARE counselor one-on-one. -on -one. So the SHARE counselor would either go to that family's home, if it's here in Northern Virginia, uh, they're welcome to come and meet in our offices, or we can meet virtually. We can meet on Zoom. 
But it's not something where that couple is interacting with other couples. It's something where the share counselor is working specifically with that couple on a schedule that works for them and helping them to develop the plan that I referenced earlier and really open up communication about what's how things are changing, what we'll do in the future, and to build some confidence moving forward together. So the SHARE program is really, I would say, the first step that most families take after that diagnosis of dementia, because we're coming to you, whether it's in your home or on Zoom, right? It's something where we're working directly with a family. And then oftentimes after the SHARE program, the family has built a bit of trust and learned a bit more about resources available. And oftentimes then the next step is actually participating in the Mind and Body Workshop. So now at Mind and Body Workshop, you're coming to us at Insight and you're also engaging not only with staff, but with other families. So there's sort of a, a, a way that people tend to move through the programs that we offer at Insight. And it's not that anyone has to go through all of those programs in that way, but that's just sort of the typical progression of utilizing our services. And to that point, Lindsay, I, I, you've also been mentioning about the adult day health programs uh, for persons with cognitive impairment. And help us understand a little bit more, because oftentimes, as we talk about these topics, we hear about memory care communities. Can you explain or would you explain the difference between what goes on in the adult day health program as compared to like you hear about memory care communities? What do we need to know? So an adult day health program is is just, a, it's a day program. No one lives there. No one stays overnight. There are set hours that the program is open. Um, we're in a memory care community. That's a place where people would live. So that would generally be an assisted living community that specializes in memory care. So just the person with the diagnosis would move into that community. So that's the main difference between the two. But what they have in common is that in an adult day health program, just like in a memory care community, you would have a whole team of staff available. There are nurses, there are social workers, there are recreation therapists, there are caregivers who are certified nursing assistants, you know, a whole team of people to really help, help everyone in the program with whatever it is they might need as their symptoms continue to change and progress over time. So the Adult Day Health Program is located in Fairfax in that Fair Oaks area, and it's open Monday through Friday from 7.30 until 5.30. So the people who come to the Adult Day Program can come anytime after 7.30. We have some people who come right away in the morning, like their care partner drops them off and then maybe goes into work for the day and picks them up after work. Others might come in at 10 or 11 or noon, if they're, uh, you know, someone who sleeps in a bit and might leave at three or four or five in the afternoon. So it is much more flexible as far as the time that someone might come and would go from the program. The adult day health program also includes meals. So in Fairfax County, we're part of the congregate meal program. If someone lives in Fairfax County, their meals are included free of charge in our adult day program. And if someone's outside of Fairfax County, they can either choose to pay for those meals or they can bring their lunch with them. But there are a whole host of services available in the adult day program, kind of in addition to that activity schedule throughout the day. And if I remember correctly, you also said that there is a fee uh, to participate in the adult day health program. Is that correct? Yes, there is a fee to participate in the adult day program. And the fee uh, is basically the number of days that someone is enrolled 
then combined with the level of care that is needed. So as I mentioned a bit earlier, there are three different levels of care within the adult day program. So depending how many days you come and which which level of care you are, that's what the monthly fee would be. And it is all on our website, very transparent, which is insightmcc.org. And then you just want to click on the adult day health program uh, tab in the menu. There is a financial assistance fund available as well. So part of our budget at Insight, our operating budget, includes a significant amount of money that's set aside for the financial assistance fund. So this means if someone needs our services but is unable to pay the full fee for those services, they can apply to the financial assistance fund. And those applications are are blind reviewed by the financial committee on our board of directors to determine what the need is, what's available in the fund, and how we can serve those families as well as possible. Because our goal at Insight is to never have anyone be turned away, never have anyone not able to access services just because of a financial limitation. So don't let any, uh, any price on the website scare you. You know, definitely do check into the financial assistance fund if there is a limitation there. And I would also say that is one main difference too between an adult day health program and a memory care assisted living community uh, is the price. You know, and the adult day health program, I, I won't say it's inexpensive. I mean, it, it does come with a fee, but it is significantly less than moving into a memory care community. So the fee in the adult day program, depending on how often you come, might be anywhere between $1,200 and $3,200 per month where in Northern Virginia, a memory care assisted living is generally going to be at least between eight and $10,000 per month, if not more. And one quick final question I had regarding when persons that have been diagnosed with dementia would come to the adult day health program, is there any particular stage um, in which it's most suitable for um, individuals to begin to participate in these programs? The adult day health program is really designed for people who are nearing the middle stage and all the way through the end of life, really. Um, We do have an intake team. So if someone contacts Insight and they're not sure which program is the best fit for their loved one, we have staff who would meet with the family, who would meet with the individual and really help to make sure that the person is engaged in the program that is the best fit for them because we want the person to benefit from the program. We don't want someone to feel frustrated by activities that are too challenging or to feel like something is too simple or there's, there is um, sort of too much care provided that the person doesn't need yet at this stage in their journey. So there are staff who would help determine what is the best fit and also that guide families as things change because these are progressive conditions and we know that eventually the person will need a different level of care and so the staff, you know, really work to build a relationship with the family, open communication, regular meetings together, so that we're all on the same page about when it's time to transition to the next level program in our center, but also to work with families to understand how things are going at home, because people tend to engage in an adult day program, either reconnections in the early stage or the adult day health program, middle and late stage, because their goal is to age in place. They want to stay at their own home, you know, for the rest of their lives, or at least for as long as that is possible. So we partner with families to find out about how things are going in the evening, 
on the weekend, on the days when they are not at Insight, so that we can give families recommendations about other services that might support them or tips for behavioral challenges, for example. But we also learn from families. What do you do at home? You know, and what, what works? What doesn't? What's changing? And then we can all be on the same page and really work as a team to support the person living with dementia. Okay. Well, I want to make sure we cover all of the other programs yet. So I want to ask you about the kinds of support groups that are available. Who participates and how often are the groups conducted and where? Tell us about that. Insight does offer a variety of both support groups and classes for care partners, so for caregivers. Uh, Our support groups, there's a whole menu of support groups. So we have different types of groups depending on the type of diagnosis. For example, we have a Lewy body dementia caregiver support group. So everyone there cares for someone with Lewy body dementia. You know, the symptoms there would be different than with something like Alzheimer's disease. So people really get to interact with others who are really going through something quite similar to what they are. We also have an FTD caregiver support group, again, disease specific. We have an early stage care partner support group. So the challenges in the early stage and and what a care partner might be going through both emotionally and sort of logistically within the household is different than when someone is in the middle or late stage of the disease. So in that early stage care partner support group, there's really an opportunity to talk about things like when do we tell our friends about the diagnosis? Should my loved one still be driving? You know, I get so frustrated when he, you know, he wants to help around the house, but he puts the dishes in the linen closet when he unloads the dishwasher and things like that, which are quite different than some of the, the things that occur in the middle and late stage of the disease. Um, and we do have a general community caregiver support group that's for any caregiver of a person living with dementia. And we also have a caring for your parents support group because just sort of that role reversal and the dynamics between an adult child and their parent with dementia could be a bit different than with spouses. And a few years ago, we partnered with Capital Caring Health to offer a bereavement support group for people who've lost someone specifically to dementia. So there are a variety of support groups, and we're always listening to the community to hear what they need and what works best for them. So most of our support groups are still meeting on Zoom. They are free and open to the public. Uh, And this fall, some of our support groups are starting to offer some in-person opportunities as well. So you can always check our website to find out about what support groups are meeting, where they meet, when they meet, and how to register to attend. All right. And I understand you have social programs. Why are these important and what are they? We have two main social programs, you know, which are really just meant for people to get together and do something fun together in a very non-judgmental environment. So one of those is called a Memory Cafe, and we offer our Memory Cafe in person once a month in Fairfax and once a month in Sterling. And the Memory Cafe is an opportunity for families to get together and do something fun. So each month is a little bit different. We might be doing uh, something like a trivia game one month. We might be learning about the Hubble Space Telescope one month. We might be having an ice cream social one month. We might be doing a white elephant gift exchange. You know, it really varies from month to month, but it's free. And it's an opportunity just to kind of drop in and to get to know other families and do something fun. There are other memory cafes also in the Northern Virginia area uh, at other through other organizations. And some of them meet in person and some are virtual. And there's a list of all of those memory cafes on our website, even the ones that aren't affiliated with Insight, because we want people to have access to the resources that work the best for them. 
And the other main social program that we offer is in partnership with Encore Creativity. Encore Creativity has a network of choruses for older adults across the country. And their chorus that is specific to individuals with a memory impairment and care partners is called the Sentimental Journey Singers. So they have rehearsals every week, both in our Fairfax location and in our Sterling location. And by the end of their fall semester in mid-December, there there will be a concert uh, in each location. So it's a really great way for people who love music, who, who don't need to have any type of professional music experience, but love music, love singing, to get together and to have a really wonderful time. And I won't go into it, but there's a whole body of science about the benefits of music for someone living with dementia. Okay. And um, two more questions that I wanted to have you talk a little bit more about caregiver training classes. What, what are they and how often are they? they offered? What do we need to know? There are a series of care partner trainings that are held each month with a different topic and a different speaker each month. These are free and open to the public, and so I encourage you to go on our website and look at the whole yearly schedule of monthly care partner trainings and sign up for anything that is of interest to you. Uh, This fall, here in 2022, we are still offering those via webinar, but into 2023, we'll start offering some in-person opportunities to attend these classes as well. So check out our website to get the latest and greatest on that. And then a couple of times per year, we offer something called a caregiver boot camp on a Saturday, which has um, a variety of speakers and topics that are presented. And we also offer community education. So we go out to faith communities, to senior centers, to civic organizations, and really anyone who wants to have us to talk about brain health, dementia, caregiving topics, um, aging, and uh, to really bring education to people where they are and where they feel most comfortable. And that we do free of charge. So again, you can always contact us at Insight and we are happy to coordinate coming out to your organization to teach about brain health and dementia. And the final question, we want to ask you one more time to tell us how to uh, learn about Insight Memory Care Center. All right. So Insight, the best way to learn about our services is either to visit us on our website, insightmcc.org. Or to just give us a call, 703-204-4664, and just ask one question. You know, you ask one question, and it leads to 10 more. So just call and and tell us what's happening in your family, and we are happy to, to help connect you to services that will help you if you're the care partner, you if you're the person with the diagnosis, um, or even if you're the long-distance family member or friend. Just go ahead and contact us. We do offer free consultations to anyone, anywhere. So over the phone, uh, over Zoom, in person, whatever works for you, you can always call and just ask whatever questions are on your mind. You don't have to be in this area. You don't have to be enrolled in any of our programming. You can always call and ask questions. I will just give a little teaser that we are expanding our Reconnections Early Stage Program to the Alexandria-Arlington Corridor in 2023. So stay tuned for that if you're tuning in from the Arlington or Alexandria area. And we also offer virtual programs. So no matter where you are, we do have programs that can serve you. All right. Well, I want to thank Lindsay Vajpai, Director of Early Stage Programs at Insight Memory Care Center for joining me today. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you so much, Cheryl.
Well, I want to just remind our listeners also that if you want to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com. And of course, at this site, you can access all of our Aging Matters radio shows and TV episodes, as well as the Aging Matters podcast, which this program and all former programs are on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. You can learn more about that company at inkmouthmedia.com. So thank you for listening to Aging Matters again today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week.